Welcome to the Knicks Wall Podcast, presented by Whistle Sports. I am your host, Mike Cortez. Joining me today, Eli Cohen. Eli, what is up? Not much. How you doing, Mike? Good. Just ready to talk some Knicks and talk some prospects. We're going to get into Poku. And another person who's going to help us do that is my longtime draft season co-host, Nick Carante. Nick, what is up? Not a whole lot, man. How you doing? Good, good. So, before we get into Poku, which I want to spend most of the time on, Kevin Durant was making news again. Some 400 days after he signed with the Nets, he's still talking about why he didn't go to the Knicks. And once again, it is annoying that he's talking about the Knicks, but I really do think he had some truth in his words. And just to quickly read what he had to say on J.J. Reddit's The Old Man and the Three podcast, Katie said this, quote, I didn't want to be the savior of New York. I didn't care about being the king of New York. That never really moved me. I didn't care about being on Broadway. I just wanted to play ball and go to the crib and chill. And that's what Brooklyn embodied. I think that's a fair take. I mean, clearly, I still believe that he wanted to come to New York. But whatever the case is, I really do think he hit on something here. And it was similar to when he said the Knicks weren't cool, which is the Knicks kind of seem stuck in. I don't even know what time this was even relevant, where pitching winning in New York was the only thing they did. They did that to LeBron, it failed. Melo, it worked since he actually lived here. But they seem to do it again with Durant, and it just didn't stick with him. And I have a feeling Durant's sentiments are similar to other players. So I just wanted to kick it off. Whoever wants to go first, by all means, Did you? what did you take from Katie's comments? Do you think it was just him being bitter? Did you think he had some truth to his comments? Or do you think it's just, nah, who gives a shit? I mean, to me, it's like it's less – telling about the Knicks and more just telling about, you know, who KD is. And I, I do think that there's truth to it. And I don't think that it's some like massive character flaw, but you know, for all of his faults, like Mello did want to be the savior of New York, right? He wanted Broadway. He wanted the lights and he wanted, he knew that if he wasn't the savior of New York, like he was going to get ripped apart, which is sort of how it went at the end. Right. But KD you know, he never quite took the mantle from Russ. Like, he, he had that sort of, like, back and forth two alphas with Russ in OKC. Then he went to Golden State. Like, he doesn't really want to be the man. And he could be if he wanted to. But we've seen time after time that he sort of would rather – you know, it's funny that people call Steph, like, a collaborative talent. But KD would rather be a collaborative talent than to just, like – plant his flag and say like this is my game and like you guys are all gonna bow to me so in the end I think like he's right that you got to do what's right for you and clearly the the Knicks offer a little bit too much pressure and like saving the Knicks is no small task right so it's gonna be a lot of weight on those shoulders and he decided to do the slightly, you know, the slightly easier route, the route that would get a little bit less scrutiny. And, you know, it is what it is. That's sort of who he's been the last five to 10 years. And I don't know, you can't, like, you can fault him for that, but he's really just kind of being true to himself. And at the end of the day, that's all we can do, right? 
Yeah, hundred percent. And I do think this is should be a wake up call for Leon Rose to stop thinking about. I don't think Leon Rose is thinking this, by the way, but past regimes clearly have. We're offering a blank slate. We're giving the player full dichotomy, like they like LeBron often gets. It's just not appealing to as many people as they think. I think you hit the nail on the head, Eli, with Kevin Durant kind of be more of the artisty type of person in the sense that I don't think they're really interested in like winning the corporate race because Kevin Durant's going to make money regardless off his name. He's Kevin Durant. And I just don't think there's that many LeBrons out there or Carmelos where they want to become these business tycoons. And you don't even need to be in New York to achieve that anymore. You could be literally anywhere. I mean, Giannis could probably make a ton of money and he's in Milwaukee. So Nick, what did, what were your thoughts on that? On KD yeah, I or team both, building? I think you guys both said it. It's, it's funny to me. It obviously pissed off a lot of Nick's Twitter and brought this conversation back to the forefront about who KD is, is as a person. And, you know, from what we can tell what he wants. I don't think it's surprising though. If you ever hear KD talk, He's always that kind of, I just want to hoop. I don't want to worry about all the pressure and the stuff that comes along with it. He's had his issues with the media before. There is no reason to think, not that it couldn't have worked if he came to the Knicks, but there is no reason to think that would have been a good fit for someone who, again, hates this media pressure, scrutiny, looking into every aspect of his life, and for all intents and purposes just wants to play ball. Like, it makes sense for him to say this. The one thing that I thought of really was, was LeBron. And how LeBron still brings it up and it comes up frequently about how he wanted to play in the garden and it didn't work. And he still talks about how he could have came to New York instead of the the heat. And I think that's now where we're going to be at with KD, where even though he didn't come to the Knicks, it's always going to be connected to the Knicks. And now this is always going to be the story. If, if they win a title in Brooklyn, whatever happens, it's now going to be, well, that could have been the Knicks or that wasn't the Knicks. It's going to keep coming up in these interviews. People are going to keep asking about it, and it's going to keep coming to the fold. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think he's totally right, yeah. I mean, I think just the fact that there were so many rumors and so many people, including Dolan, seemed to be so sure that he was coming to the Knicks. Like, as much as Knicks fans might want to say, all right, get over it, stop talking about it. Like, he's not bringing it up. People are just going to be asking him about this. It's going to – because this is what is going to define the second – or this, what, probably third act of his career is this time in Brooklyn. And the entire time that he's there, it's going to always be contrasted to the what if of if he had gone to the Knicks. So and – and I really do think that the, the relationship with the media that Nick brought up is a really great point, especially because, like, I mean, his teammate is Kyrie, who's, you know, very similarly prickly with the media. Mm-hmm. There, there are reasons to think that, you know, if you take, like, Nick's beat writers and, like, everything, the, the heightened emotions that always comes with Nick's media in general, and two of the most, like, sort of prickly and media-averse superstars, like, it, 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 it makes sense. There are reasons why going to the chill sort of lesser covered brother team is, is actually kind of a good fit for them as much as I hate to admit it. Yeah. And I, but I still think the main thing was there was no backup plan. Like there was no, there's no reason for Durant to come here, especially once Porzingis got traded because he needed somebody to say, yes, I'll come with you. And I do think, if that happens, I still think Durant would have come here. I don't 
think he would have enjoyed the whole media part. But I really do think he's a basketball purist in the sense that he would love playing at the Garden 41-plus times a year. But there's really nothing. Like, when you look at the roster, it's really nothing. And for somebody right, who just wants to you need an on-court draw. Exactly. And you don't want to play GM. Like, LeBron just happens to be that type of person. And even when he went to Miami, he already had Wade and then Bosh. So it was more of just getting shooters, which they eventually got, and created one of the better teams we will ever see in 2012-2013. But that still took time, and they had two stars there. Well, they had one star there and then another star joining him. Knicks don't have any of that, and they didn't have any of that going into the summer. It was just like, okay, well, we traded away all the bad contracts. Any good player we do have, you can elevate or you can trade them too. But, yeah, this is all yours if you want it. It's kind of well, like just giving somebody a big piece of a uh, big plot of land and saying, "Hey, just you can build a skyscraper if you want, but you know, it's up to you." I think you you mentioned it earlier, Mike, but like, KD is not LeBron, right? And that's the comparison we're going to keep making because they are the two superstars to take you know this autonomy into their own hands. The the player empowerment era, whatever you want to call it, those are the two definitive examples of these sort of superstar free agents. But KD is not LeBron. And I don't think KD wants that full control. I think he just wants everything else to be set around him so he can play. And it was the funniest thing about me, about that podcast to me as a Knicks fan, is for him to, to talk about that and then continue to compliment Porzingis and talk about how Porzingis is going to be a force moving forward and the comments he said there. Like, yeah, nobody thinks that – I hope nobody still is defending the, the Porzingis trade at this point. We don't know what would have happened if – that trade hadn't happened going into the free agency, but clearly that was a, a factor for KD because that was the only clear-cut, talented player the Knicks had to surround him with, and they got rid of him. Yeah, and the other thing that that trade also did, which I think now that you mentioned that, I really do think the dominoes really started to fall of KD going against signing with New York because I believe he said in that podcast, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but I think he said February, around February, he realized he didn't want to go to the Knicks and – that trade was – that Porzingis trade was at the end of January. And after that, he started to get questions on, well, they just traded Porzingis, their only good player. I guess that means you're going there, right? So he started to have to answer those questions. Then you had Dolan's infamous Michael Kay interview where he says, we're very sure we're getting one or two high-profile names, not so subtle about Durant. So I do think Porzingis, Porzingis being traded – don't forget, Durant was the one who gave Porzingis that unicorn title, which – everyone's run wild with ever since so just all that mixed in and that brings me to our current best player Mitchell Robinson and before Katie's comments there was debates going on on Twitter on what to do when Mitch's contract time is up because right now he's on a sweet deal I believe he makes a mil or close to I think two mil maybe either way it's very cheap that's not going to always be the case he's with clutch sports now He's going to get a big payday whenever it does come. Do you guys even think it's debating whether to resign Mitch or is it more of just planning to build around Mitch? Because it's, it's ludicrous to me that people would even consider trading Mitch on the premise that they don't want to pay him. Well, to me, there's like, it seemed like there were two different conversations that were happening around Mitch. The, the conversation that I saw that sort of kicked off like a week of sort of Nick's Twitter war was more about 
how centers are not a valuable position to invest in if you're not like to use your own cap space in if you can't go over the cap to sign outside stars and how because Mitch has gotten good fast enough that you're going to have to pay him before those outside stars come in that then you should consider just trading him for like any combination of young prospects who with some kind of potential that you don't have to pay until you have those stars. So that was the first thing I saw, which I think is sort of uh, really kind of putting the cart before the horse type of argument. Like, I, I don't know, A, you have to be pretty sure that you're going to get those stars. Like, I would rather pay the guy that I know is good right now than some hope that there are going to be stars once I give away the only good player, like the only established good player on the team. Uh, and then, like, the second part of the conversation seemed to be, or where the conversation moved to is, like, if you listen to trade offers, right? Then, of course, you're going to listen to trade offers for anyone on your team. That's just due, due diligence. But, like, there, there seems to be some panic about what his contract is going to be, which I think is really interesting because we've seen over the last five, seven years that really the only, like, centers that are making sort of max money, 20-plus million a year, which are, like, the numbers that we've seen, people are like, I'm not going to spend 20 million on Mitchell Robinson. But, like, the people who are getting those are, like, Jokic and Kat and Embiid and that's basically it like Mitchell Robinson coming off of a season where he can't even start for a 21 win team is not going to be getting a Nikola Jokic contract so I, I I don't even think that that's like in the realm of possibility like yes he's with clutch sports and everyone gets worried because you, we all know that Rich Paul gets his guys paid but the market for centers is still the market for centers. And yeah, it only takes one team to throw a big offer at him. But it just seems really unlikely to me that some outside team is going to throw a max offer sheet, especially in like in 2021, when there are all those stars available, that someone is going to tie up their space for three days with a max offer sheet for Mitchell Robinson, assuming that he doesn't get to a point in this coming season where he's clearly worth that. And if he has gotten to a point where he's clearly worth that, then that should probably be a sign that the Knicks should keep him around and not keep kicking the can down the road because we don't have other stars, like, because he got too good for a shitty team. Like, that to me is just, like, the most self-defeating kind of mindset. Right, and Nick, I'm <clears throat> going to turn over to you in a second, but just for to frame what Jokic is being paid right now, he's he's getting paid around 26 mil this year and 28 30 and 32 in the preceding years. So I don't, I really don't think Mitch is going to be around that tag. He obviously had a great year coming off the bench, but first he has to start, prove it. But for someone who just came off having the best field goal percentage of all time, maybe start him first, keep him in, keep him in the mix, you know, I, I build around him. But my question, this is why I want to turn it over to you, Nick. Don't you think the Knicks should be more inclined to build around Mitchell Robinson, who has at least shown that he can develop a jump shot in videos, not on the court yet, versus R.J. Barrett, who I love him, but he may not be able to be a knockdown shooter. So shouldn't they be more focused on Mitch anyway? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting debate because we can say with some confidence that we know – you know, I would find it hard to say that there's going to be a worse version of Mitch than what we've seen, which is already very good, right? If if this is his floor of a rim-running, rim-protecting center that 
is incredibly efficient and like you said set, setting records with field goal percentage and does what he does blocking blocking shots on the perimeter and catching lobs and that's the worst you can do then that's a good starting point and he does clearly have room to grow whether it's with shooting or with um staying you know playing more minutes staying out of foul trouble that sort of thing but it's very clear that the Knicks have if not you know necessarily a, a cornerstone franchise center they have a, a very very strong building piece to go around and there is no reason to to look elsewhere with that and yeah personally I think you could you do both at the same time and I think what both Mitch and RJ need is shooters around them and defensively Mitch is enough of an anchor that he's going to give you way more flexibility with whoever that uh, foreman is long-term with him. There are, he does enough where you can get really creative. And this is what we have to hope Thibodeau is trying to do defensively. Mitch is the anchor. We need to see that from RJ offensively, but we know it's Mitch defensively. Right. And there's not that many centers that, I mean, shot blocking, not just at the rim, but on the perimeter. You don't really see that many centers closing out like he does. He survives on the perimeter when he has to. Obviously, you don't want him to be out there full time. You don't want this to be where he becomes a point center. But he can survive out there. He had a couple breakaway steals for a fast break dunks last year. He's just an exciting defender overall. I think it's just ludicrous to even consider worrying about paying him. It's more of just like planning for like, okay, he's going to make X amount for the next four years. Here's where we should focus our leap. You know, that's, I think that's the conversation to have. Eli, what, what do you think? Um, RJ yeah, versus think, Mitch or just in general? I think the RJ versus Mitch thing is really interesting. And I've actually, I think I've brought that up on this pod a couple of times. So, it, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors that go into it because I think we can all basically agree that at this point where the NBA is wings in a vacuum and especially two-way wings are more important than centers. Just like you can do more with them. They're more versatile. Like RJ can play, you know, three different positions in a pinch where Mitch really can only play one and that versatility, especially in the playoffs, we've seen it goes a long way. Now the question with RJ is like, how real is the versatility? If he's not a shot creator, which is sort of like what he needs to be, to be like a top option, then he sort of like limits the te- like, like the way I see it is like you can build a good offense where Mitch is one of your primary outlets much easier than you can build one around RJ. And that's sort of the difference is you can build an offense that features Mitch, but you have to build an offense around RJ it, just in terms of how you utilize those two players. And then the question becomes, is RJ good enough to be worth building an offense around and how high is the ceiling of a team that is built that way? And like, I, you know, I, as, as this off season has just stretched on and on and on with no end in sight, like, I think it's easier to sort of just take like the flaws kind of get magnified just cause like you overthink it. And I know that so like, I, I'm not, out on RJ by any means. I still think he can be a really good player, but I think we have to also try to be as honest as possible. Like it's not like he's a flawed, a flawless player. And it's not like he's a surefire star right now. We saw him be like a good versatile player and that that's what it seems like he can be. And if he can take some major steps then he's got a really high ceiling, he can be a lot more than that. But 
it's going to be really tricky. So if you're going to choose one, like I think it's easier to build a system around like with Mitch in it than to build one around RJ. But like Nick said, like you basically need the same thing for both of them. You need playmakers and shooters and hopefully guys who can kind of not be total minuses on defense. So I, I don't think that they have to choose, but I do think it's weird that like, yeah, the conversations about Mitch is like, well, he's a center and centers aren't that important positionally. Like it, when the conversation becomes just about like archetypes and positions, I feel like all the nuance usually gets lost and like, yeah, Mitch is a center who can't shoot and that limits who he is and what the team can be. But he's also a center who can be one of the best pick and roll defenders in the league and one of the best perimeter switching bigs in the league, I think, because he's got the foot speed and the recovery speed to get to guys. Like once he cleans up his footwork and his technique, I think he'll be a really good perimeter defender. And if you have that in the playoffs, like that's incredibly valuable. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I just think like obviously there is a there is a price at which I would say that's probably a bad idea for Mitchell Robinson. I just don't really believe that there's an offer out there that's going to get to that point. Like 20 million for me would definitely make me blush. And I would have to think really hard about it. Like I would not feel great about signing Mitch to a $20 million contract, but I also don't really think that that's going to be the thing that's on the table. Like if it's like the DeMontis Savonis got like, I think 18 million in an extension Mm -hmm. and he was coming off a similar year where he was like splitting time between starting and the bench. And like, so if if that's what it is, then I, yeah, I would absolutely pay him. Like Sabonis is a better passer by a long shot and is a beast around the rim. But I think like defensively, there's no question that Mitch is better. And I think that Mitch has like a lot more growth to be done and a lot more areas that he can improve. Um, so, I th- yeah, I think that he's going to be worth the money. And at some point, you just you have to start trying to keep some players. You have to start exactly. keeping your good players and giving other players a reason to want to come there. If you just keep trading your good players for worse players who are cheaper, which is what they did with Porzingis, mm-hmm. then people don't want to come and play with you because your team is worse. You just keep kicking the can down the road. It's like It seems like a very simple concept that I think a lot of the time gets looked over a little bit. Yeah, and one thing on Mitch with shooting – I believe he can at least develop a mid-range. I mean, for anyone that goes to the games early, and you can probably still see it on Twitter, open gym I don't really like to buy in on. But even when you, like, early pregame, he's hitting shots. Like, he's doing the whole full shooting workout, and he's hitting. Like, it looks smooth. Like, it doesn't look like some herky-jerk stuff. So I do think there's untapped potential there. But Well, the other thing is, like, he's got to be in a position where he's asked to do more than – run fast and jump high like the what he's been asked to do for the first two years has been about as little as humanly possible while out on the court and so we haven't seen him with a coach that pushes him and that asks him to stretch himself and that sees what he can really do that, that like gives him a little bit like I'm not saying like you said I'm not saying make him a, a playmaker but give him a little bit of responsibility and just see what happens and until we see that I think that all these conversations conversations are so premature just like we we've never seen him in a in a competent setting it's in the same way that we haven't seen rj and that's so big like how are you going to give up on a like people are saying trade him while his value is high i don't see this as his value being high he didn't he's you know he came off the bench for i think 16 of the 21 games 
or whatever, however many games they played. He started like less than 10 games, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and like was really just a run and jump guy. Like there's no way that that's his peak value. No, not at all. And that, I think, and just for people, Miles Turner, I think is a good marker too. He's making 17.5 a year. Randall, Julius Randall's another name who we just signed last year, 19 mil. So I really don't think Mitch is going to climb above that. I, re- I mean, unless he has an, a year from the gods next year, I really don't see it surpassing 20 mil personally, like whatsoever. But Yeah, I'd be shocked. Yeah, I just – I don't see it. Um, yeah, so, guys, I'm just going to restart the meeting just so we don't lose time on Poku. <clears throat> I'll send cool. an invite to restart just because I don't want to get caught in the middle of that. Well, Kyle could just use it as an ad read. So I'm going to drop another link in um, Twitter right now, uh, Twitter DM. All right, sounds good. So in that spirit, I do think planning in regards to Mitch is a smart idea. And that reminded me of a prospect we talked about at the end of last episode, which is Poku, who is Poku. And for those who didn't listen, which you should, Poku is the international man of mystery for this draft. He could very well end up being the best player in this draft. And he also could be a great fit next to Mitchell Robinson. So Eli, I know you did the profile on Poku and Nick. I just know you have a fascination with international prospects. You've been our Denny correspondent for some time now and have also been in on Poku for some time. So I'm just going to give you guys the floor first. My first question is, why isn't Poku near the top 10 in most draft boards? I know a lot of people are high on him, but why hasn't he become a consensus top 10 pick at this point? Because I feel like, Star hunting in this draft is few and far between, and from what I've seen and heard, I feel like Poku's ranks near the top. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple different reasons. I mean, first of all, he the amount of games he's played, like there's very little current footage of him out. Like a lot of the stuff that people are relying on is from when he was like 17. Um, so in that way, it, he's a big time gamble like when you you call him a man of mystery and that's he's like the closest one we've had since probably like Dante Exum like the most real man of mystery like there's just like not a ton of in-game footage of him and he was going up against a lesser league you know a, a b a b league in Greece and honestly I think like the third answer is sort of he didn't start the year as like a top 10 guy and I think we've seen that it's like, it's kind of hard for those to shift dramatically. Like, look at how long it took for someone like Cole Anthony to lose his like top 10 consensus status. Like, I think that these wheels kind of move slowly. Um, and especially right now when we have so much time, I think it's going to, this is going to be an interesting draft because I think there's going to be more time to pour over everyone and you're going to see more volatility in the expected draft order. But I think that it's just taken him a long time for, you know, people who aren't pouring over draft stuff to really get around to even seeing him because, you know, because he's so hidden away. And I think from what I understand, some of that was intentional, like that he was sort of kept off the team or like kept from playing big minutes um, because he was basically too good to be there. Um, so I think that there's a lot of reasons. And the other reason is just that, you know, he is 
a huge gamble, like from his body to the fact that he is sort of, I think there, it's pretty clear that he has times where he kind of floats, you know, you're not sure how engaged he's going to be from game to game. Um, like there, there is a, a, a real chance that he kind of, I don't know if he like busts necessarily, but you know, there is actual downside there. Like if you don't develop him right, it, you could uh, like a dragon bender seems very lazy, but like you could get something like that where you get a, a very hyped prospect who comes in and isn't put in positions to succeed. And like Bender just wasn't as good as people thought. And Poku is a lot more fluid and is, you know, better at a lot of stuff that Bender was supposed to be good at than Bender is. But, you know, uh, I think that there is real risk, but like you said, he's also got that upside and in a draft that doesn't have a ton of high end upside, it does seem to me a little crazy to not have someone with that kind of upside top 10, because like, I don't know. I guess you could go safe in this draft. You could just say, I'm just going to choose a player who I, th- I know is going to be pretty good. They're not going to be great, but that's okay. They're going to be a solid player. And I'm good with that. Like, I totally understand that, but there's going to be some teams who are going to say, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go for the guy who has the best chance of being good, of being like really good. And Poku might have that best chance in the class. Like if all breaks well for him. Yeah, I think that was all really well said. I mean, the man of mystery kind of verbiage around him is is legitimate for all the things that you said. He is just the weirdest prospect. And Mike said on the intro, he could end up being the best player. And I don't think anyone that's hyper-focused on the draft would be that shocked if he was. But also, you know, there are a ton of variables that are legitimate concerns from the sample size the level of competition, the body, these are all real things that need to be taken into account for him. And they're things that could not matter, but they could. And we don't have definitive answers on what that'll look like when he's going from such a low level of competition to such a high level. He's just a really, really interesting prospect. And you said Exum. I mean, that's a, that's a good comparison for the, the level of mystery. I mean, it's really remarkable that in 2020, where there are cameras and footage at every gym in high school, middle school, AAU, international, and everything is available, that there is so little real full game footage for Poku. It's crazy. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out, we're talking about a dude who is seven feet and 205 pounds. Like, he is going to have so much work to do before he's able to, if, if we're saying that he's like a four in the league, like granted fours have been getting skinnier and skinnier and smaller, but like, you know, I, I, I was, I wrote in my article that, you know, Knicks fans hated how Porzingis would get bullied by like the Marcus smarts of the world, which for the record, like everyone gets bullied by Marcus smart. That's what makes him Marcus smart, but that it's neither here nor there. But like, if we, if we say he was getting bullied, like, I just can't imagine like you get a defender who just goes up into Poku's body, just like doesn't give him room to dribble and I'm, I don't really know what he's going to do because he's not strong enough or athletic enough to just explode from a standstill. So I think I think the other reason this gets back to your question, Mike, the other reason why we see him kind of lower is any team that is taking him is probably he's probably going to need like a G League year and not like a full G League year. But like he's probably going to need to be spending a decent amount of time in the G League, maybe coming up for a couple games at a time, going back to the G League 
like to allow him both to be working in development staffs and weight rooms, but also to be getting like real minutes in more like up-tempo situations where he's not going to be picked on as much. And for a lot of GMs, they're going to want to see product on the court. And so it's tough to use a top 10 pick on a guy that you're not even planning on rolling out there right away. Like most times top 10 picks are like money makers for teams, right? You can market around them. You can put them on the court and like, you know, you run rookie of the year campaigns for them. Poku's probably not going to be that guy. He's probably going to be a little bit more forgotten about until, you know, he's one of those guys who you look down the line with. And I know that Knicks fans are worn out on projects who don't give immediate results. But I also do think that, you know, this current front office that's being assembled and like the development staff, the coaching staff should get a little bit of the benefit of a fresh start, like a clean slate. So for us, it feels like we've been in this cycle forever, but it's for them, this is year one. And I think that they they might not be as impatient to get the rebuild over with as fans are, um, especially with, you know, like the limited options to really, turn things around quickly. Like you're not going to get a star in this free agent class. You're probably not going to get a star who can come right in and contribute in the draft unless you end up with LaMelo. So they could, they could see this as like a swing that they take that pays off big dividends next year and sort of allows them to just see what they've got this year. Right. Like even like the whole Scott Perry still being the GM for a year, they could use the season with the players in a similar way to just like evaluate what's there, trim the fat, figure out exactly who they want to build around and take it from there. And Poku would kind of be the perfect guy for that. He would just, he would allow them to have a high end prospect while still allowing them to, you know, tank and to see what the other guys have on the team. Now, do you think it's only going to take a year for him to like, at least get the weight down? Because what intrigues me about waiting the year is kind of the same reasons waiting for Michael Porter Jr. intrigued me back when he was in the draft. I think it was 2017 or 2018. It's that you can have like almost two top five picks next year in a sense where you get Poku this year. And you mentioned this on the last pod, Eli, where let's say theoretically the Knicks stink again. You have a top five pick, whoever that is. And then you also have Poku. And now you have two those two plus Mitch and RJ, I think that's pretty good. But do you think he's going to need more than a year? Do you think it's only weight that's holding him back right now? Uh, I think it'll take him – I mean, it depends on what we're what we're going for. I think he'll be able to get on the floor in a year. I, I don't think he'll put on nearly enough weight to be not bullied in a year. But, like, I, I would say that if you can get – like, if he's in a good development system – then he should at least be ready to start coming in off the bench next year. And like you said, yeah, I think that that's the way that you would see it. If you take Poku, especially if you take him with a high pick, you're really investing in what happened in 2021, getting your own likely top 10 to five pick Poku and whatever you get from Dallas, hopefully like, you know, late teens, early twenties, that's like crossing our fingers. Um, And then you can really like, that could be a, a single, you could turn around the entire franchise really right then. You know, you get those three guys. If you hit on those, on even just like two of those three guys, plus RJ, plus Mitch, and whatever you get in free agency, because there's so many free agents there, like that's a real chance to just make like a huge step forward. So that I think that that's sort of a, a point in the favor of taking Poku this year is like this year, 
like you can get Fred Van Vliet, maybe, I doubt it, but maybe. You can get maybe like a Davis Bertans, but you're not going to get anyone who fundamentally changes the direction of the franchise. So I think everything has to be geared towards when can that happen? When are you most likely to get people who can fundamentally change the direction of the franchise? And Poku could be sort of like that middle ground where you're taking someone, but they're not going to really be affecting your winning chances this year. And you're just kind of sowing more seeds for the future. Yeah, and what do you like right now? He's projected to go like end of twenties, so I think he would be a trade up target. I don't think the Knicks are going to go with him at eight. I just think they want to at least get one player that they can point to and say, "Okay, this is going to be part of our core and play a fair share of minutes next year." Like Devin Vassell, Killian Hayes. I think that's more of the realm of what they're going to do at eight. But they have two picks after eight. They have twenty-seven and thirty-eight. They have a pair of Mavs pick to work with. So, Nick, would you – what's like – where's the farthest you would go to land Poku? Like, are you that sold on New York that you would package some potential picks that could be used to move up in next year's more top-heavy class? Yes. Yes, I, I think he's worth it. I mean, now, depending on – he has a very high variability with – where he's going to be. Even if you look at, at Mox, there's not really consistency on where he ends up going. I would say in like the 18 to 24 range is typically where you will see him, but some mocks will have him, you know, end of first out of the first and some mocks will have somebody reaching on him in, in the lottery. So it's really hard to, to get a good barometer on that because that will determine how much they have to give up. Right. If the, if the Knicks were to trade up, trade back into the lottery, they're going to have to give up quite a bit to get him. If you could tell me that they could trade up to 18 with Denver or some, somewhere like that or staying in the 20s and just give up that, that 36 as well as 28 or future seconds, that sort of thing. Or I'm, even, I'm willing to give up a, one future Mavs pick. It just – there's, again, a lot of, of variety on – how teams will view him and where he could end up going realistically. Okay, a better question, I think, and Eli, jump in as well. I guess the better question is at what point in the draft, like last year for Brandon Clark example, I would have, once it got to like 15, 16, I was like, yo, how do you, are you not trading up for Brandon Clark? Not just the Knicks, but anybody. So where, what is that point for Poku? Because like you said, there is a high variance to what he can turn into, especially – with the team that struggled to develop project picks in the recent recent memory. Kevin Knox is still kind of lost in translation. Frank's starting to put it together, but that's more of his effort than the team's. So at what pick do you start like saying, like, okay, let me make a move? Because trading up to like the top, that first, still the first half of the first round, like in the 10 to 15 range, might be costly. So you have to be really sure that he could fit next to Mitch, which I think he does and we talked about earlier that Mitch is very easy to fit with, especially for somebody like Poku. So what pick do you think that you start saying, okay, let me, let me get this guy because he's starting to really slip. You know, it, it's funny for, I was actually just the other day, I was just like messing around and coming up with a little list of like players that I'd be happy with at each spot. So I did like the eighth pick, and then I did a either trading up from 27 or back from eight. 
section. And then I did like a 27 and also 38, just to sort of, cause all those players I feel like get jumbled together. And then I realized I had Poku in all three categories. <laughs> so it's, it's really hard. Cause like, like Nick said, like you, he's all over the place on mocks. And as we started out saying, I don't really see a reason for him not to be a top 10 pick in this draft. Like, let's say, let's say the Knicks get to eight and we got LaMelo, Ant, Denny, Killian, Okoro, Vassell. So that's six guys off the board. Let's say Onyeka Okongwu is the seventh guy off the board, right? And so then it's like, are we picking between Kira Lewis and James Wiseman? And in that case, I'd say take Poku. Why not? Because like, yes, I get that there's like an idea that, well, some mock drafts had him lower. So maybe that's not the best use of resources. But I think that in this draft, it's going to be, like I've said before, I think it's going to be a really volatile. And I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens that's unexpected. I think a lot of teams are going to be trying to trade back. I think some teams are going to be trying to trade up. And so I do think that there's sort of a certain logic to just, you know, like, that's our guy. We think we could maybe get him if we traded back to 12, but we're going to take him now because we want to make sure we have him. I, I would be okay with that. Now, if, if the draft played out differently and you have like Vassell or a Coro that then like, okay, so that becomes more of a question. And then I would probably take those guys who are a little bit more sure and say, all right, let's see if we can trade up. I would be pretty hesitant. I would maybe look at like the Mavs 23 pick. I'd be a little hesitant to give up future assets to get him. But again, if you think he's your guy, if you've like done the work and you say, you know what, we have the infrastructure in place where we can really give him the tools he needs to like kind of like he, the, the other thing I think about this guy that doesn't seem like he's ever been like coached super hard. Cause he doesn't, he's got a lot of like crazy instincts and like does just like unbelievable things just out of pure like reaction. But he, his technique on most things is pretty shoddy. Like his jump shot, his defense, his closeouts, it doesn't really seem like he's ever learned how to do those things. So whatever team takes him is going to have to teach him those things. Right. And that's part of the whole, like, probably going to be at least a year before he's coming in and really providing value. Uh, but I, I really think that it could be any of those places. And I think it's justifiable, especially in a draft like this. Like if you get to that, like in that first hypothetical that I was laying out, I Kira is going to be really hard to pass up. I really like him. I would take him at eight. I know Mike, you, you would rather trade back down for him. Um, I've actually become oh, yeah. more open to taking him at eight and we'll talk about oh, yeah. that. In a yeah. I've actually, the more I've thought about it and Okuro as well, where it's just been like, I was settling way too much on RJ being a fixture of the lineup, but mm-hmm. I'm really open to like a lot more at eight, but the, just to jump in real quick on that. Yeah. Go for it. You can really take Poku at eight and then you can still stay back at 27 or even move up marginally and get like a Tyrese Maxey, Cole Anthony, you can still get a good guard or even a good wing like Jaden McDaniels from Washington's another, like, I don't know if you want to do double down on project picks, but you have Desmond Bain. Like there are enough players where you don't have to go into, Oh, I need this position. You know, like they're not at that point nearly at that point (laughs) where you can even start to think about positional fits. I think it's more of just, all right, what's the upside for these guys? Well, I think, and we keep saying it, but there aren't a lot of, home run picks in this draft you're right this is not a Knicks team that can 
that can afford to pass on, on best player available types. And if there's not someone they like at eight, I, I don't see any issue with taking Poku. If there's a world where you could trade down and if a team like Boston with multiple first-round picks wants to move up and then you could take Poku at 14, that sort of thing, I mean, I would be open to. But, you know, Eli kind of said it. There is oh, – because of his variance and if the Knicks take him in any spot in this first round, I think it's it's defensible. I don't think there's a world in which you take Poku and, and – Knicks fans have a right to be upset because the upside, whether he gets there or not, warrants the risk. Yeah, and Mike, like you said, like, I, I think that there is a, a really good chance that like, if you take Poku at eight, that you can try to, especially as I said before, like I think a lot of teams are going to be trying to trade back. Uh, so I don't know if they're going to be trying to trade all the way back to 27, but there is a chance that with their cap space and their you know, their nominal assets, who knows how much anyone actually wants any of their assets who aren't RJ and Mitch, but like there will be ways for them to come up. So like if you could get Poku and then trade into the late teens and either take, I mean, if you could get Kira Lewis, obviously that's incredible. But even if you get someone who's like, like I think it would make sense to try to balance Poku out with someone who's like a little bit more like, like a Desmond Bain, like you said, Mike, who is older and more ready to just like come in. So you get your guy who's contributing right now and you get your pick that could like really turn things around and be like an X factor in your rebuild that you point to and say like, Oh, that was what put them over the top. Like you could get that guy for later while still having someone who's on the court who you can say like, look, we're making strides. We're addressing needs that we need to make. Uh, so I think that there are going to be a lot of options for them. Um, and it's going to be really interesting. Like I said, like with them, probably I, I would guess, especially with, you know, Walt Perrin and Brock Aller, I think they're going to try to trade up from 27 and 38. And, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see which teams are looking to trade down and are willing to go that far down and what, you know, what the Knicks are going to need to give up if they want to make that happen. Yeah. And the name that actually sticks out to me more than Mitch, RJ, Frank, any player on the roster is Kenny Payne. Knicks paid a lot of money to lure Kenny Payne away from Kentucky. Kenny Payne has a reputation for developing bigs. And for my fellow Kentucky fans, shout out Big Blue Nation. Shout out Jess Reinhardt. Um, Nick Richards last year, perfect example. If anyone saw Nick Richards when he first got to Lexington, he was not a good basketball player. He was often – I often groaned when I saw him come in. But last year he was easily their best player. And now he might actually – playing the NBA at some point. And before that, it was P.J. Washington. Bam out of right, I was about to bring up P.J. Washington with a yeah. huge one. He totally PJ's another changed one. his game from freshman to sophomore yeah. year. He freshman year, a PJ. shooter out of nowhere. Yeah, I remember P.J., the reason U.K. lost in P.J.'s freshman year, not the sole reason, but a big part of that loss was P.J. just whiffing at the line. Next season, he comes back. He could start shooting all of a sudden. He was shooting free throws fine. He developed a three-point shot. Like, it was beautiful. So you have somebody that can – like as a big whisper, if he is, Poku seems like the perfect challenge in my opinion, right? Totally. I, I want to jump in here because we've talked a lot. Again, Poku is fundamentally a big. I mean, he is somewhere between 6'11 and 7'2, depending on where you're looking at his measurement from. But he's not a big he is he is big but I still I mean he one of the things that makes him so weird is like 
he's just nominally a, a guard that happens to be that size. And maybe that's one of the things that he bulks up and you can get him more traditional. I mean, not that he's ever going to be a traditional big because at, at the absolute least he's a, the stretchiest of stretch fours. But, man, there's a lot of different things you could do with him if he's coached up that he can just be used in so many different ways. Right. I'm yeah. glad you brought that point up because – sorry, I'll, I'll let you – No, you're good. Very quick. The funny thing with watching Poku beyond the YMCA-level gyms that he plays in is when I first watched him, I was telling Nick before we recorded, I'm thinking he's like Denny size, like 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, I was like, oh, he's, he's good. He makes nice passes. He's a decent athlete, you know? But then I find out he's 6'11", 7'0". I was like, holy shit, this guy's moving really well. And Eli, you said mentioned last pod again where he's not nearly as stiff as Porzingis. I think the polar opposite. And that's what's intriguing to him. And, Nick, I think you are right. He's not a big in the traditional sense. But maybe Kenny Payne does install some of those characteristics to his game. Like Maybe he does add a little post-up. Maybe he does become kind of a point forward for this team. That's, yeah, that's right. intriguing. And those big man tendencies are sort of like the things that he does kind of need to. Like he's actually a pretty good rebounder, considering how skinny he is. But like a lot of that is just reaching over the top of people. But – yeah, I mean, like it's interesting, with Nick, when you were saying that, I, I kind of remembered I was having a conversation with um, the guy who runs Grizzly Bear Blues, the, uh, the Grizzly site for SB Nation, and he was talking about Jaron Jackson basically this year playing like a 6'11 Clay Thompson. And, uh, and I think that like early on, especially, that's going to be sort of similar to what you see from Poku, except that it's not going to be Clay Thompson. It's going to be someone who can actually – you know, insert some guard who can both like run off of pin downs. Cause he, I think he should be used like that. Like just coming off a of pin down, relocating to corners, but he can pass. Like he's a really interesting passer. He, he's got like, you know, in the piece that I wrote and it's obviously not a perfect one-to-one comparison, but I, I called him the seven foot Lamello. Uh, and if, he's not on the level of passing of Lamello, obviously, cause if he was, he'd be the number one prospect in this class bar none, but like the way that his brain sees like these really bizarre like sees things that no one else would see even other seven footers and tries to make these crazy ambitious passes and you know sometimes it works and sometimes it fails ridiculously um but there's there's a ton of on-ball creation that he offers which is really exciting especially like if you're comparing him with Mitchell Robinson like you could see a really nice two-man game developing between them you know, he takes some playmaking duties away from RJ and if the Knicks should ever get a point guard. Um, so, so you're right. Like he, he's, he's going to be this weird, like do it all kind of wing. He, he, yeah. He's somewhere between a wing, a guard and a big, but he's not really any of them. And so that's like both a little bit scary and like super exciting for, you know, the youngest who I think it's worth pointing out. And people have said this on Twitter, but he's younger than most of like the top freshman in next year's draft class. So that just goes more towards like the, you know, you're taking him now to see what he is next year. Exactly. And I think you brought up an intriguing point with his passing and it just kind of just ties into the whole theme of the pod where you kind of have to shift your thinking on rebuilding as in New York, because the Messiah mentality is just not working. If you add multiple people that can pass, we've seen RJ, has a good feel for the game at the very least, regardless of what he has to develop. He has a good feel for the game. Frank, 
good feel for the game. Mitch is still developing that piece, but you add someone like Poku and just, just the thought of constant ball movement is something that excites me very much. Yeah, and I, I wanted to go a little further into that passing set. I, I thought Eli made some really good points. There's almost a little Nikola Jokic to his passing. He loves the catcher rebound, you know, full court heave kind of pass. You know, the Poku thing that you're going to see the most in the highlights is he goes behind the back with passes, those sort of like, where does he see it? And they don't always work. And he makes some really immature passes, but that's where I think the the coaching component comes up. Because Eli mentioned it earlier, there's some really what would theoretically be fixable things if he's coached up a little bit with his shooting form. Also with those sort of boundaries and parameters that he's never really had on him as a player for better or worse, the reins have just kind of been unleashed and he does whatever he wants offensively. And again, that results in some crazy shot selection, some crazy passes. And when he, get, when he gets to the NBA level, where obviously it's a significantly higher level of athleticism and player around him, he's going to have to pull that in a little bit. But I think having those sort of experiences, then when you coach into that, he figures out that control component. I think that's where the passing could really see it because he does have ability to play in different positions. You know, you can run pick and roll with him on either side. And I think that sort of variance is what makes him a really dangerous passer going forward. Yeah, I love it. And so what would like you get, like, let's say the Knicks add Poku and let's say they trade up to get him and they get Kira Lewis for argument's sake at eight. What do you need to see from Poku next year to say like okay this was a solid pick like what would someone that's not tuned into poku at all what do you have to see from him to say okay maybe the knicks aren't stupid for next year i would say you know don't be just completely lost on the court i think for next year you'd really just be looking at flashes you'd just be you know how is the shot coming along how like are his mechanics kind of becoming more consistent and, like, is he starting to seem like he actually understands defenses versus just uh, – or sorry, not defenses, but playing defense versus just reacting and using his length? Um, like I said, like, I, I think even a successful Poku season, you probably wouldn't see him playing I, – I would imagine, like, I would imagine, like, less than 40 games in the big – in, like, the, the main team and then spending a lot of time in the G League. Now, obviously, we said the same things about – you know, Mitchell Robinson wasn't supposed to play right away. Porzingis wasn't even supposed to play right away. So this has been said over and over again, and time after time, people exceed those expectations. Uh, but with with Poku, I do think that it's going to be it's going to be real. I think he's really going to need patience. But I think he's going to also need some time to just like come in, play real games for the team, and stretch his legs. And so I think in those moments, you're really just looking at like how functional is his dribbling. Is like is he try is he making passes or like are all of his passes a beat late now that you've got the NBA athletes uh, and just like does it look like he's able to read the game or is he just more of a flashy player who's never gonna like you know quite put it together I think that so so you're really just wanting to see if he's starting to get things like ironed down or if it's all just still kind of these erratic, wild, controlless flashes. Yeah, and I, I, that's that's reasonable. I think that's 
very possible too. With I mean, the Knicks don't really have much to do. For, I think the next two years, I think they still have to develop the pieces they have now before they even start dreaming about making the move. And this ties into star players not wanting to come here, no star players really being available. So they have time to work with. So the last question I wanted to ask on him, is he the top trade up or back target? And just, I'm just going to give a couple of more names just so you can get a better grip of who I'm asking about. Like Sadiq Bay, Tyrese Maxey, does Poku rank above all those people in your opinion? For me, pretty easily. Like Maxey, I like Maxey. I would definitely trade up for him. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Sadiq Bay. I think he'll be fine. Um, but Poku's, especially if we're talking about a trade up from 27 and you're already getting someone like Kira at eight. Yeah. Poku's the guy for me, like not really a question. Yeah. I'm at that same place I, with the guys you listed. I don't think there's anyone with the upside, particularly close to his that, that I would feel even remotely similar about a trade up target. Is there anyone else that I didn't mention that you think would supersede Poku as the top trade-up target or even just the top shot-in-the-dark guy? Because he kind of seems like the lottery ticket prospect where you kind of you might have to overstep your boundary to get him, but it could be well worth it. Is there anyone else in that class? I can't really think. Maybe Patrick Williams is like the only guy in the middle of the draft. Precious, his inability to shoot is kind of the major turnoff for me. But is there anyone else I haven't mentioned that you think is worth it over Poku? Or do you think Poku's like, if you're going to take that big shot, it is him? I would say Tyrell Terry and Grant Riller are both guys who I would, it would be a question. It would be like at least a conversation. Like, I think if, if it's the guys who would be a conversation about them or Poku, it's like those two, Terry and Riller, like you said, Patrick Williams and Tyrese Maxey. I think those would probably be my four. And I'm not – I don't really see anyone else kind of may, – maybe Desmond Bain. He He's like a straggler. He's a straggling fifth. I would say that – but that's my group. And I would still probably take Poku over those guys, like, more often than not. Nick, what about you? Any prospects that I didn't mention or Eli didn't mention that you think would – rank over Poku in terms of trading up or just having your eye on him overall? Well, I'm glad he mentioned Riller because I've, I've been on a, a Riller kick myself because I, I absolutely love him. And I, I do think for where he's going to land, he is going to be one of the value picks, but not as necessarily a, a trade-up target. Uh, no, I think that Poku is – he is somewhere, again, because of the variance and where you're going to see him in different places – he is kind of in a league of his own because he kind of bridges the, the lottery picks to the, the, later, the later first type prospects because he is, depending on the person, both. And I think that's what makes him a really interesting potential candidate for the mid, mid to late first because he does have such a high upside. I, when you're looking at the Euros in that range, I do like Bomero a lot, but he's going to be – uh, stash this year. He has already confirmed he's not coming over for the next year. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm pretty sure he's staying at Barca. Yeah, so he's in the draft, but he, he is going to play another year in, in Europe. So that's not someone that I would necessarily love to to trade up for, although that I do like Bomero a lot, and I, I would, wouldn't hate him at all at 27 if they stay at that pick. 
Okay. Um, yeah, Griller, just to put one last note on Grant Griller in particular, do you think he can last till 38? Because I've seen him all over the boards as well. And we'll probably talk more in depth on him in the coming months since we, the draft has been pushed back to, I think, November. I forgot the exact date, but at least middle middle or early November. If you can get Riller in the second round, I think you can really start to think about making a move at least back into, like, early 20s, back into the teens. Yeah, he. I mean, he seems like consistently in the second round for like mocks that tend to be like not just like what I would do, but like what I like you get like a Sam Vecini where he's like, this is what teams are telling me, and I really just I don't understand it at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. He seems like such a safe bet to just come in and be a really like he seems like one of the best offensive players in this draft, um, and sort of in that Bane way where he's like he's a little older, so he's a lot older. So he can come in and just contribute right away. Um, I would take him at 27 if he's there, honestly, just because I think I think he's one of the probably like the 15 best players in the draft. And I really don't understand why he's so low. I mean, I, I understand why the arguments are there, but I just don't buy them really. So if you have a chance to get him at 38, like I think that's such a steal. But I would I would definitely even consider him at 27. Yeah, I'm the same way with him. I would like him at 27 and absolutely love him at 38. Yeah, I think that's... I think he, he, he is good enough offensively to, to warrant that. And I, I've been very surprised seeing him in like the, the 30s to 40s in mocks, but that's consistently where he is. Yeah, well, that's that's another plus for the Knicks. And that's, that's a reason why they should... Pl- I mean, they have enough time. They should plan for every possible scenario, kind of like how Eli has his little board. But, yeah, I think in the coming months we're going to get into Riller and other prospects. But the overarching – My big question with Riller Riller is, like, are there five better offensive players in this draft? Like, are are there five guys who we can look at and say, like, they're for sure better offensive players? And that's, like, you know, as we go forward and we talk about Riller in the future, that's what I want people keeping an eye out for because I don't think that there are. That's interesting. My my quick answer is no. Who – I mean, just really quickly, because we're running out of time, but – Give me like like two or three guys you think rank above Riller in offensive potential. Um, Lamelo, I think if we're just talking potential, I think yeah. you could say Anthony Edwards, but I don't really buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know; it's a pretty short list. I'm out of names. The, those are the clear two for me, and then I was in the same sort of like. There's a couple guys you could throw in that range, especially if you're talking more potential and less, you know, matter of factly. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not a whole lot of guys. Interesting. Well, we'll get into Riller. Uh, any Nick, Eli, anything to plug? Anything coming up? Just uh, go read that Poku piece that came out like uh, earlier this week, and it should shed a little bit of light on a guy who's been mostly in the, in the shadows. Yeah, and if you want a, a reason to just click on it to begin with, there's a clip where he has a, night, a brilliant tip pass, and that's probably my favorite clip of this draft season so far. So make Joe sure you Kitchian. Yes. Yes. Very Joe Kitchian. Make sure you read the whole, the pro profile. It's really good. Nick and Jess will be back doing draft season in the coming months. So make sure you're out on that. Nick, do you have any profiles coming up? 
I don't, but we are we're starting to work on that mock draft that should be coming out later this month. Yes, so make sure Eli, Nick, and my good friend Quentin Haynes will be on that. I have the updated draft board coming out Tuesday, so be on the lookout for that. And as always, follow the Knicks wall at the Knicks wall. Follow Whistle Sports at Whistle Sports. Follow Eli. Follow Nick. Their names will be underneath the post. Follow my co-host Kyle Maggio. And, yeah, we'll see you next time.